This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. There's nothing quite like the hospitality of going to someone's house and, you know, sitting on a porch in, in the South and someone makes you a cocktail, brings out a deviled egg. And it's not the food or the drink, it's the way they do it. It makes you feel welcome. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. My guest this week is an acclaimed chef who has brought a mixture of the Korean cooking he grew up with and techniques learned in New York and Paris to Louisville, Kentucky. It's no understatement to say that he's dramatically changed that city's food scene, and in many ways, the very definition of Southern cuisine. Because I do think Southern food and Korean food have this beautiful synergy where, again, they're just opposite sides of the universe but the humbleness of the food, the simplicity, developing flavors over hours and hours over the stove. Every time I would eat something really Southern, I'd go like, we do the same thing in Korea, just different ingredients. Chef Edward Lee is a James Beard award-winning author, a former Top Chef contestant and judge, and the owner of several restaurants, including the now legendary 610 Magnolia in his hometown of Louisville. He's also the co-founder of the Lee Initiative, a nonprofit that has provided millions of free meals to out-of-work restaurant employees during the pandemic. We'll dive further into the Lee Initiative today, as well as how Southern music and Southern food are intertwined, and why he feels the basis for all Southern cooking begins at home. All that and more this week on Biscuits and Jam. Edward Lee, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Edward, you're kind of a fixture in Louisville now, uh, but that wasn't always the case. You grew up in Canarsie in Brooklyn, where you were surrounded by so many different ethnicities and cultures. What was some of the food that you grew up around? I mean, we didn't eat out much. I ate most of my meals at home. But obviously, like, there was old school, like, New York pizzerias. And I remember there's this little uh, Jamaican place where we used to get our beef patties. There was lots of Caribbean food, lots of Indian food, Pakistani food. It took me going off to college, you know, in Michigan to realize like, oh, you didn't have Pakistani food at your fingertips. And uh, not, not everyone had this childhood where you just had this incredible melting pot, literally, of food and culture. So at home for you, it was Korean food, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, both my parents worked long hours, so my grandmother sort of stayed at home and cooked, and um, as all she knew was Korean food. We, everything was made from scratch, so it's a lot cheaper. We had jars of things all over the house. We, you know, now it looked real trendy and stuff, but back then it was just <laughs> like weird things, funky things fermenting in jars all over the house. My friends would come over and like go into the bathroom. You know, and like you'd open the shower curtain, there'd just be like tubs of kimchi in the bathtub. <laughs> and like, like trying to explain that to my friends. I'm like, I don't know. 
but now it's like all the rage, you know? Uh, <laughs> so it's just my grandmother was uh, very ahead of her time. So you've talked about your grandmother being a big influence on you in terms of food. What did you call her, by the way? Uh, Hanmani, which is the Korean word for grandmother, just a generic, you know, grandma or granny. She was very influential in Korean culture, like the man or the male, the son, it's not really supposed to take the culinary tradition, right? Because traditional Korean culture, it's a woman's job. And um, my sister couldn't care less about food or cooking or, or whatever. <laughs> and I was young and I kind of, you know, I had to play by myself a lot, was, you know, because like there's a seven year difference between my sister and I. So. In, in essence, I was kind of like an only kid. So I had a home lot. I don't know what it was, but I just, I was very attracted to the smells and the sounds and the sights in the kitchen. I've always loved food. And I was just to hang around my grandmother and she would get annoyed at me because she'd say like, this is not for you. Like, get out of the kitchen. And I had to like, you know, literally fight my way into the kitchen. And she never gave me a single recipe her whole life. She never gave me a single recipe, you know, which I regret in many ways because by the time I realized and I was a chef and everything, like she had passed on. But there are certain foundational things that you never forget. They're not recipes necessarily, but they're foundational things that set me. But it was funny because she 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 only cooked Korean food. She refused to cook American food. Like as a seven-year-old, if I wanted a PB&J, she's like, you have to make it yourself. Like she would not make me a PB&J. Right? If I wanted Korean food, she'd make it. But if I wanted a, a cheeseburger or a, a you know, grilled cheese sandwich, she's like, I don't know, go in the fridge, figure it out. So, Edward, when did you first become aware that there was a thing called Southern food? Jeez, uh, not for a long time. For people out there who don't know my story, you know, I grew up in New York and I was raised in New York and then opened a restaurant in New York and then 9-11 happened and, and my restaurant, uh, we were very close to the Twin Towers. And I just had this feeling like before I jump into another project or do anything else, I want to go and discover what America means to me because... New York City is not America. It's, it is this glorious, weird melting pot, and very international, but it's not American. And I'd always wanted to go to uh, the Kentucky Derby. It's always been on my bucket list. And um, so some a weird friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing, an opportunity came up to help out a chef during Derby. His name was Eddie Garber, and he had a restaurant called 610 Magnolia. He had opened that restaurant in 1976 when I was four years old. He liked my cooking and we just got along and said, well, you should you know, take over my restaurant because I'm old and I want to retire. And at first I said, now you're crazy. Like what, I'm, I'm like a Korean kid you know, from Brooklyn. Like what am I going to do in the South? I barely know anything about the South, but I always liked country music. I can't tell you like where or how I listened to this or who introduced me to it. And, and I remember like other kids were listening to hip hop because right? that was like the thing. And I was like, hey, would you, have you heard about this guy called Johnny Cash? <laughs> there was always that, like, I don't know, larger than life mystique about what it means to be in the South. And so I was like, oh, I got to go, you know, travel, see what it's all about. So the opportunity came up. I, I went to Kentucky and I went for the Derby, right? And it's very busy. And if you've been like, it's beautiful women in hats and flowers are blooming and there's like celebrities everywhere and it's just everyone looks great and I was like this is a really cool town uh, and, and you know no like no one told me it's not like that the other 51 weeks out of the year so finally called uh, Eddie Garber back and I said you know I'll, I'll come down for six months and I'm just gonna clear my head and learn I'm gonna live out my southern fantasy and drink some bourbon and you know, ride a horse or two and you know I'll go back to New York that's now been 19 and a half years ago 
Wow. Uh, of course, when that happened. Yeah. And uh, don't regret it, any, any minute of it. I ate around the South. I learned a lot. I went to a lot of people's homes, you know, because I, I do think like the, the basis of Southern cooking is it's less restaurant focused and it's more, you know, sort of focused in people's homes and home cooking. For sure. I mean, a lot of grandmothers, you know, who, who finally I met grandmothers who would share recipes with me instead of my own <laughs> grandmother. <laughs> Reading a lot of vintage cookbooks and stuff like that. And and as I was discovering Southern food, it actually brought me closer to Korean food. I don't know, maybe I was in Louisville for like a year or so. And I went to a, a soul food restaurant and I ate a bowl of collard greens. And I just remember thinking like, I never had this before. But it, it, and the ingredients are different, but it reminds me of a, of a soup that I had growing up when I was a kid. Uh, and it was a seaweed soup. But it's the same things, right? Like instead of ham hocks, they'd use dried anchovy and beef. And so, wow, it brings me back to my Korean food roots. Because I do think Southern food and Korean food have this beautiful synergy where, again, they're just opposite sides of the universe. But the humbleness of the food, the simplicity, developing flavors over hours and hours over the stove. I think about like how you eat a barbecue, it's low and slow, and you may have some cornbread and grits, and you may have some pickles, and it like, is not very different from a Korean barbecue where you have like kalbi, but you have kimchi and rice and, and pickled you know, cucumbers and spinach. They're both based on a protein with lots of pickled stuff that you graze on. They're both meant to be eaten with your hands. They're, they're, they're both very like earthy and, and warm. Every time I would eat something really Southern, I'd go like, we do the same thing in Korea, just different ingredients. What if some of the stuff works together? What if I made a bowl of collard greens, but I would throw kimchi in there? To me, the best food is personal. The best food tells a story of not like a whole culture story, but like a story of you, the chef, whoever, what your experience is. And, um, I had this weird experience where I discovered Southern food in a sort of parallel narrative as I was rediscovering Korean food. And they decided to put some of it together and see what comes of it. So when you showed up at 610 Magnolia, what were some of the dishes that were being served then? I honestly don't remember. Like a lot of the food was what I would just call fancy European food. Seared salmon with some kind of like zucchini ribbons and beurre blanc sauce. Because of the restaurants that I'd worked in New York. I was very comfortable with it. And, and, you know, I spent six months in France. So I'm very comfortable cooking European food and all that. But it's not the kind of food that, like, gets me going. And I believe that you can find your audience anywhere in the whole world. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to find an audience in Louisville, Kentucky, that liked my food and believed in it and supported me. I, I always challenged myself and people that came to my restaurant. And I think they appreciated that. Uh, and even if they didn't understand everything, I think they appreciate the fact that, you know, I came to Louisville with a purpose and it was not to educate people by any means, but also not to dumb down things. We were on a journey together and I feel really proud of the city of Louisville and how far it's come. So it's, it's been a really cool journey. I was just in Louisville this weekend. It's just like, it's so cool. So many things are happening. And, and you know, that wasn't the case many years ago. I'll be back with more from Chef Edward Lee after the break.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and I'm talking with four-time James Beard Award nominee, Chef Edward Lee. So, Edward, now you've got all these restaurants. I mean, you've got 610 Magnolia. You've got Whiskey Dry. You've got one called Succotash in D.C. They're all very different. But what would you say that your restaurants have in common? They're different because... I'm slightly schizophrenic. You know, like 610 Magnolias, it's very high-end and it's very precious and it's very quiet. And, you know, obviously the whiskey place is very loud. Succotash is kind of just in the middle. It's almost like, you know, a little bit of a greatest hits of the South and stuff. And if anything, it's my one, like, big fault. I'm so non-committal. I can't just go, like, I'm just going to do fine dining for the rest of my life or I'm just going to open up whiskey joint and serve burgers the rest of my life. Like I, just, I don't know. I have all these different clubs and I just keep exploring them and do, do things. You know, one of the things they, they truly have in common is a commitment to service and culture. You can do whatever. You can serve burger and you can serve beer and you can serve like eel. But if it's not delivered with warmth and hospitality, if it's not delivered with a sense of care, it doesn't feel the same. And it truly, the food doesn't taste as good. And so like when you want something to taste really good, not only do you have to perfect that recipe in the kitchen, but you have to find people that believe in it and who serve it with love and graciousness. So I'm sure everyone out there has been to a restaurant where, you know, you really want to like it and whatever it was, the waiter, the hostess, or just someone just wasn't feeling it, you know, or, or you just don't feel the warmth in the restaurant. The food doesn't taste good. Yeah. No matter how, how delicious it is. And, and so we focus a lot on what I think of as culture and culture is different from, hospitality, right? Culture is not like keep my water glass filled or present my steak this perfectly. You know, culture is just like knowing things. So like when we opened our restaurant in DC, all our staff are from DC. I taught them a whole lesson on Southern music. And I think a lot of restaurants do this where like the waiter will come out and rattle off, you know, 30 ingredients about what this dish means. I'm like, you can't separate Southern food from Southern music. Mm. You know, like it's just, it goes so hand in hand. Yeah. You can't separate bourbon from playing cornhole. There's so many things that are culturally intertwined that you can't just sit there and do a bourbon tasting and not acknowledge like, 
where this came from, that it was predominantly drunk by like coal miners and factory workers. And then that there's this whole culture that came up from that in the history of why bourbon is this, why it's not scotch. You know, it's not just the ingredients yeah. that it, it came from the whole history and the culture. So we've, we've talked a lot about that with the staff. And I, I don't want people to just be presented with like, here's fried chicken. I don't know where it came from. It's just fried chicken. If you can actually talk a little bit and explain and you got some good, you know, Avid Brothers playing on the music, and then you're listening, you know, all of a sudden you're drinking a good bourbon, and you're explaining why this cocktail goes with this fried chicken, and why you should have some pickled jalapenos with it. It's all a whole organic thing, and it comes together. At the end of the day, I want you to go away feeling like you just didn't have a meal, but you had an experience. You're telling a story, and you're also a writer, Edward, and you have a book that came out a couple of years ago called Buttermilk Graffiti, that won a James Beard Award in 2019. And it's all about traveling around the country and discovering what you called America's melting pot cuisine. And I'm wondering if that journey really changed you when you were reporting and writing that book. It really did. I think I spent so much of my life studying food. And, and I spent so much of my life in the four walls of the kitchen where we were just like, just learn technique and learn how to braise and how and, and I like I didn't have time or money or resources or, or or the energy to go out and travel and look and read and make friends. One of the benefits of I guess doing well and succeeding and getting older is that you do have a little more resources. And so I really wanted to discover these things about food that were left out of my education, which was culture and people and story passed down from generation to generation through families, through friends, through cultures, through narratives. And that's something that I picked up about Southern food, like 20 years of being in, in, in Kentucky. And I, you know, I joined the SFA, really good friends with John T. Edge and all the chef friends that I met through there and just traveling, you know, all over the South. And quite frankly, I don't, I may not be from the South, but I don't know. There aren't a lot of people who've traveled to all the little, you know, fried chicken stands in the South that I've done in the last 20 years. <laughs> like, I go, I go to east parts of eastern Kentucky, and my friends in Louisville are like, why the hell did you go there? I'm like, eh, it's, it's pretty good food. <laughs> you meet all the people who sort of, you know, have this food knowledge in their head. And they're, they're not necessarily always the people that write it down or write a book. And so in, in writing Buttermilk Graffiti, I met so many of these people and I got to tell their story. And in doing so, I just realized that there's an endless trope of stories in this country about the very foods that we love. Well, you know, speaking of people whose stories haven't been told as much, your first chapter in that book is about Cafe Du Monde in New Orleans, which is, you know, one of the most iconic restaurants in the city, if not the whole South. And you pointed out that a, almost all of the wait staff are from Vietnam, which was so interesting. And I guess I had noticed that, but I hadn't really thought about it. What does that one place tell you about Southern food? Well, it's, it's iconic. It beautifully exemplifies the history of Southern food and the direction that it's going. And that there's all these intersections and crossings. I remember the first time I went to Cafe Du Monde and like, you know, some people in New Orleans, because they've been going there so long, they don't even see it. You know, and 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 maybe it's like a testament to like not seeing race. And I'm sitting at a table going, is anyone else recognizing that the entire staff is speaking Vietnamese in the corner over there? And we're at Cafe Du Monde. There's gotta be a reason for that. You know, I gotta 
get to the bottom of this. To me, it all starts with immigration, right? And immigration and, and migration and flows of people, it's always a moving target. I travel the globe, you know, with what I do. And everyone says, well, the South is this one thing, and it's very white. And I go, it's really not. You go there and you see it and you eat the food and you talk to the people and you travel to all these places and you go, it's really diverse in the South. You don't notice it at first. And maybe it's not always what it's portrayed as, but it is very diverse. And not only is it very diverse, but it has had to embrace diversity in ways that maybe other cities and other regions have not. And, you know, this, the South has had a dark history, but in some ways, because of that, it has to address its history of racism in ways that other cities have not had to. Uh, or other regions. And, and listen, you would be naive to think that racism exists in Mississippi, but it doesn't exist in New York City. Right. Or it doesn't exist in, in LA. Like it exists everywhere. But there is something about Southern culture that forces you to kind of confront it and look at it and say, like, yeah, there, there, there's there's been this. And so we, we, we try and move on. I think there's still a lot of stereotypes about the South, which are embedded in stereotypes. They're not embedded in truth. And, but then that's the very thing that we're all trying to get over, stereotypes and bigotry and whatnot. So it's, it's a really interesting thing to be in the South, to not be white, but to also like write about it because it is. I mean, you know, there are pockets of places in the South where it's incredibly diverse. And I love celebrating that. Well, Edward, speaking of trying to make change in the South and really in the country, I wanted to ask you about this remarkable organization that you founded with Lindsay of SASIC. Tell me a little bit about the Lee Initiative and what was the original idea behind it and how has that changed? Yeah. Well, thank you. First of all, I think you're the only person that's pronounced your name right. So I'm going to send that down. <laughs> I think it's like, I don't know where the origin is, but I, I even I can't say it right. So, <laughs> this would be very nice. I had some practice. Yeah, we started it really after the Me Too movement happened. And we saw, you know, obviously these chefs getting canceled for their sexual harassment abuses. And, you know, our entire professional lives has been in this industry. And listen, it's, the media does what they do. Like they, they, they shine a spotlight on things that need to be spoken out against. But what happens is then we have this negative image of the entire industry. And so we, we wanted to do something that was positive, right? And so what we did was say, said, well, let's do a mentorship program. Like as we're, we're talking about the injustices, let's actually do something to help these young women get ahead in the food world. And so that they don't quit the industry and they don't have this belief that everyone is, is bad in this industry. And so we, that's what we started with. Uh, we were thrust. We were just at, at the right time, at the right place. We had this nonprofit set up already. We had a assist because we we fed people in the past, and we just had this blueprint for relief kitchens already set up. So we were quickly able to mobilize and start a relief kitchen in Louisville, which you know, in, in the first. 
three or four days of the economic shutdown when restaurants shut down, we were fed thousands of people. And we realized like this is a national problem, not a local problem. So money started pouring. We asked sponsors, we asked corporate sponsors, we asked our partners, Makers Mark stepped up big. And we just started to open up relief kitchens around the country and fed over 2 million meals during during COVID to, to restaurant workers who were out of work. Unbelievable. Yeah, we did a million and a half dollars in grants to small family farms, a million and a half dollars to grants to small family owned black businesses and restaurants that didn't get their PPP loans. We just, you know, keep pushing forward. We're going to try and do things that are impactful. We're not a typical nonprofit. We're five people in a small office. At this point, over 93 or 94 cents out of every dollar we raise goes directly into aid and programming. And, 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 and so we don't, we don't have overhead. We don't have a marketing team. We don't pay for consultants. We run on the, on the philosophy that like there's work to be done. There's people that need help. We have to do things out of kindness. We don't do them for awards. We don't do them for accolades. We don't do them for money. We do things because there are people out there that need help and they need our help. That's been a thread that's, that whether it's helping nurses during COVID, you know, the nurses were working so hard doing 12, 13 hour shifts. They would go home. They couldn't feed their families. They didn't have time. So we would deliver meal kits for four to all these nurses so they wouldn't have to cook it at home. Whether it's a, a young female line that's looking for a career path in this business, to a bartender who's out of work, to a farmer who can't sell their products because of the economic shutdown, like we approach this attitude of like, you know, what if you were in, if I was in your shoes, what would you really need? You know, not not what what gets the best PR, but what do you really need? Edward, I also wanted to ask you about the McAtee Community Kitchen, which you started in Louisville back in 2020. And you hired a young chef named Nakia Rhodes, who we recently named a Southern Living Cook of the Year. Can you tell me a little bit about Nakia and and what her role has been in that group? Yeah, Nakia was someone who I met um Gosh, many years ago now, and she was one of the first people that went through the Young Women Chef Mentorship Program. She's had a bit of a rough childhood, you know, and she's had to deal with a lot of things that young people should not have to deal with. And whenever I see that, I, my heart goes out to them because I had a kind of a rough childhood too. And, and, and food was my outlet. Like food brought me out of poverty. Food brought me to a place where I don't think I could have succeeded otherwise. And I saw that in Nikki and I saw something special in her. And I said, well, you have to go through this program. And she got a job and worked at my restaurant in Milkwood. And she worked at 610. She liked everything that she's ever done. She would excel at it. And then she would like sort of graduate. And then she was just so integral. And, and during COVID, you know, she was the first one that stepped up and said, what do you need? I'll help out the relief kitchens. I'll help do this. And for those of you People who don't know, David McAtee was a barbecue chef and was murdered during the protests in Louisville, Kentucky, during the social movement protests. And he wasn't even protesting. He was cooking barbecue in his backyard. And they, they shot him. To me, the, the reason we renamed the kitchen McAtee was not, it wasn't a political statement. It was the fact that he was a chef in Louisville. And I share that with him. And he was someone who cared about his community. And he was, he was known for giving free meals to people in need, you know, even though he didn't have much himself. And so I said, we're going to name this community kitchen after him because what he really cared about more than anything else was his community. And we're going to use that, that money and, and energy and spirit to feed people in his community. And I asked Nakia, I said, 
I have this idea. I'm going to name this kitchen after him and you're going to take it over. She didn't hesitate. She was like, that would mean a lot. That would mean a lot to me and my community and my people. I couldn't have done it without Nakia. She's been a rock and she's been someone who has always taken any challenge and risen to the occasion. So I'm very much indebted to her for helping me do the Mac and D Kitchen. We're looking at other ways to do it and we're going to launch uh, sort of like a 2.0 Mac and D Kitchen come this spring. That's great. I've heard you say that Edna Lewis had a big impact on you as a chef, and I'm just wondering what her legacy means to you today. Listen, there, there's a lot. Southern food has had this like huge peak and, and this huge like popularity, but Ed, Edna Lewis was someone who was able to speak to it, to write about it, to celebrate it during a time when it wasn't trendy. And, and I think that's a really important thing to understand. We all kind of stand on the shoulders of the, what she did and that she had the ability and, and the audacity and the courage to like write about those things and to write about issues that weren't exactly popular back then. When I first moved to Louisville 20 years ago, Southern food wasn't popular. So like my restaurant was very Eurocentric and other restaurants were doing Caesar salads. And when I always tell people, I learned Southern food in Louisville, Kentucky, homes. But there were uh, three restaurants that I would go to religiously, Franco's, Big Mama's, and, and um, Hosanna's. And those were all three soul food restaurants, you know, run by Black ladies. And they, they were the ones that were keeping the flame of Southern food alive and well in Louisville, Kentucky, when it wasn't popular, when it wasn't trendy, when you couldn't charge $18 for a bucket of fried chicken, right? Because they were charging $6 and they were making oxtail and they were making smothered pork and they were making all these things. And that's where I got the taste for it. Now, you know, you walk down Louisville, Kentucky and, and you, you, you know, you can't walk two blocks without getting hit in the head with a skillet of cornbread. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the case 20 years ago. So if you really wanted to learn about cornbread, you know, you had to go to or, or Shirley's where yeah, I would wait 20 minutes for her damn hot water cornbread because she would make it from scratch. It would take 20 minutes. And I didn't have a lot of time, but I was like, I'm going to wait for it. There's the best damn cornbread in, in Kentucky. And, and I'm even to blame, right? It's people like myself who kind of popularize it in some subset of uh, society. But I've always felt that it was important to give these people credit and to say like, this is a food that's in these people's DNA, it's in their blood, it's in their livelihoods. And, and Edna Lewis was someone who was able to crystallize that into words. She, I think she brought it out of the greasy back kitchen and made it something that was respectable and made it into an art form, made it into something that we go, oh, we, we now study Southern food, right? That wasn't happening generation ago but there's always those people who just steadfast and, and just do what they do and i really appreciate them for it yeah well edward i just have one more question for you um and it may sound funny to a guy who grew up in canarsie but you've been in the south and in louisville for 20 years now what does it mean to you to be southern um oh man that's not funny at all i i really do think it's the kindness and the care and just the community that I see all over the South is just real. It's real in, in a way, like when we talk about hospitality and I get it, like, yeah, you can go to a Danny Meyer restaurant. They're very hospitable. 
but there's nothing quite like the hospitality of going to someone's house and, you know, sitting on a porch in, in the South and someone makes you a cocktail, brings out a deviled egg. And it's not the food or the drink, it's the way they do it. And, and, and it makes you feel welcome. And that doesn't happen everywhere. And I'll tell you a funny story to finish it off. I grew up like I was a chef in, in Manhattan, you know, New York. So it's very rough. And I remember I moved to Louisville and I was, they'd sent me some bad fish. And I was talking to my fish preparer. I said, hey, I need this order. And they're like, well, we can't sell to you anymore. And I said, why? Did I not pay my bills? He goes, no, you, you cursed at us yesterday. I said, I said what? <laughs> I, I knew, are you serious? They're like, it's like, we don't treat people like that here. You can't do that. I don't care how mad you get at us. But you know what? They were right. The fish was still rotten, but they were right. And guess what? I don't curse like that anymore. And I don't talk to people like that anymore. And I think that's what I learned to be a Southerner is that you, you treat people with kindness and you get kindness in turn. And thank God, because I have a daughter now, and I don't want my daughter to see me yelling and cursing at people all day long. I think I'm a much better person than I am now. 20 years ago. Well, Edward Lee, thank you so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Edward Lee. Follow at Chef Edward Lee on Instagram and keep up with him via his website, chefedwardlee.com. His most recent book is Buttermilk Graffiti, a chef's journey to discover America's new melting pot cuisine available everywhere. Join me next week as we close out season two of Biscuits and Jam with selections from some of our favorite guests of 2021, including Amy Grant, Fiona Prine, Aaron and Ben Napier, and John Batiste. The deeper you go on the inside, hopefully the more timeless and the more relevant the messaging will be. You talk about hymns, that's what makes hymns so powerful. You know, they can apply to you in any time in your life. Think about Amazing Grace. Those songs weren't written for a specific moment, but the depth of them apply to all moments. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Danielle Roth, Andy Bosnack, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. We'll see you back here next week for more Biscuits and Jams.